And we now have clear documentation that those risks were known, they were extensive, and information about those risks were withheld. Today I sit down with mRNA vaccine pioneer Dr. Robert Malone, co-founder of the International Alliance of Physicians and Medical Scientists, to discuss the Global COVID Summit's recent declaration to, quote, end the national emergency, restore scientific integrity, and address crimes against humanity. The people that we're seeing now in the hospital are all vaccinated. The more doses of these products that you receive, the higher your risk for infection, disease, and death compared to those that remain, quote, unvaccinated. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Dr. Robert Malone, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Always my pleasure, Jan. I, I, this is number four, I think. Well, so you're actually just fresh off the plane from Louisiana, where you were testifying against the implementation of a childhood vaccine mandate. I mean, that is just almost unbelievable for me to hear in this time uh, during the pandemic. I agree, Jan. It is, it is paradoxical. It seems almost anachronistic, given all that we've learned about the adverse events in children, and uh, also the fact that, that COVID, particularly Omicron, is not a re significant health threat for children. But nevertheless, the governor, the current sitting governor, seems to have really dug in, wanting to have these mandated vaccines for children in Louisiana. And this is something that I've been tracking and engaged with. This is my second trip there. The first time I went with Bobby Kennedy, I think it was last September, and we testified in the House. And that resulted in an overwhelming vote to uh, uh, block the mandates at that time. And uh, then the governor came back and uh, again overruled the House and uh, required the vaccines. The attorney general then acted to call that into question in terms of the legality uh, of the activities that were being done by the health department of uh, Louisiana. This is now coming to uh, a crux with this subcommittee vote. I think it's House Resolution 3 in the Senate in Louisiana, where there was a vote, uh, unfortunately, to not allow this bill to come out of committee, subcommittee, and be voted on the floor uh, in the overall Louisiana Senate, which the uh, the whips are suggesting it would it would readily pass in the General Assembly. And just very quickly, the bill exactly, what is it? So this is House Resolution 3, in short, is a bill to uh, block the mandates. So it's important to kind of get that in your mind. This is to stop the mandates that the governor is insisting on. And they have to do it with a veto-proof majority, which they the whips are suggesting that there is a veto-proof majority in the overall Senate and Assembly, and it would pass. But um, the governor's uh, colleagues uh, and supporters have appeared at this moment to have bottled it up in committee with this recent vote. But that was what we were there to testify about. 
um, and I was specifically requested by the General Landry to uh, come back and testify um, about uh, the current state of the science. Mm. And then the Attorney General spoke at length about the uh, constitutional and state law issues about having this uh, appointed bureaucracy, uh, public health system, the health system of Louisiana, implementing these mandates, uh, which is how it's playing in that sector, in that state. Um, these are not uh, legislatively approved. They're being mandated by the public health bureaucracy. Fascinating. We're watching closely to see to see what happens there. Um, so you mentioned, you know, you're going to come back and testify about the science. Um, you just recently you were in this uh, video that expresses the fourth declaration of the global COVID summit, and you have some things to say about the science in this. So, so why don't you? Give us an overview here. So I've got the declaration and there's 10 bullet points. So this is easy for your viewers to uh, review uh, for themselves, both the document itself as well as the supporting information that is in this press conference video that we shot last Monday. So this last week, Jan was wicked. I got to say, we were shooting the press conference until one in the morning. And then I had a film shoot with Mickey Willis for the end of Plandemic all day Tuesday. And then I had to be at Baton Rouge at 10 a.m. on Wednesday. So now here we are Thursday. So it's, it's been a tough week. Uh, on the, for this declaration from the now 17,000 plus members of the International Alliance of Physicians and Medical Scientists who has this Global COVID Summit website, and that's been our group name and kind of our brand uh, since we formed uh, last fall. And this is a group that started off with just a you know a small handful of docs. We were labeled as right-wing Nazis was the stereotype that was put out in the press about us, and. Uh, which we absolutely aren't. It's an absurd uh, presentation, but it's the type of branding and labeling that anyone that has objected to the official positions of the administration has been subjected to. Um, and then we grew as a group, um, presented the first one in Rome, as you know, the first declaration. Then we had a second declaration that expanded on that and specifically emphasized not vaccinating children and the importance of allowing physicians to treat patients, allowing physicians to be physicians. Then we had a third declaration that we gave at the International COVID Summit in Massy, France, right outside of Paris, as well as um, uh, in, in some of the surrounding areas. And then uh, this is the fourth one. We debated this for well over a month among our group. And uh, these are the points that we've come up with um, that the data confirm that the injection should end, these experimental gene therapy injections, the risk-benefit ratio now that we know more and more and more about the adverse events and in parallel have seen the rise of Omicron, which is much less infectious and, and uh, deadly than the prior variants. When you do the calculations for risk-benefit ratio, 
now that we see more and more about the toxicity and we see that the virus is less and less of a risk, the risk-benefit ratio does not support ongoing vaccinations. Um, we declared doctors should not be blocked from providing life-saving medical treatment. This has been one of our core positions now going back to the second declaration. We declare that the state of natural emergency, which facilitates corruption and extends the pandemic, should be immediately terminated. This is pretty um, uh, somewhat inflammatory language that we're using here. But what it gets to is our belief is that this state of medical emergency that has been declared by the administration has been weaponized for political purposes. As functionally, we have a suspension of the Bill of Rights. This is what's justifying these uh, coercive tactics of propaganda, censorship, defamation, etc., that are being deployed both nationally and worldwide. This is all justified under the rubric of what's functionally a declaration of a state of war, only it's a state of medical emergency that is allowing the suspension of these core principles that uh, this country was founded on. We object to this. And we see no evidence that we are in a state of medical emergency anymore. The hospitals aren't full. Even Dr. Fauci acknowledged this. We declare medical privacy should never again be violated, and all travel and social restrictions must cease. This is about the point that we've all experienced, where we're, its demands are being placed on us. Um, we have these amazing stories coming out now in the news from a variety of sources and whistleblowers that we've had the CDC literally spying on us, as well as other agencies and tracking us, etc. There's been a number of violations of our medical privacy, not the least of which are the employer demands that we disclose whether or not we've received these treatments. This is a violation of HIPAA, fundamental principle of medical privacy. That has to be overturned, and that information, in our opinion, should be expunged from databases. Hmm. This is illegal, according to HIPAA. We declare funding and research must be established for vaccination damage, death, and suffering. There are many people now that have vaccine damage, and they are not able to get compensated, and there's no money being invested in trying to understand their disease and come up with ways to mitigate it. I think we have a national responsibility. We've forced many of these people to take these vaccines. A significant number of them have experienced vaccine-induced damage, and they should be compensated and they should be treated. We should understand how to treat them. We should understand how this has happened. We declare masks are not and never have been effective protection against airborne respiratory virus in the community setting. Fortunately, we had, as you know, this recent court case that overturned the mask policy, but the data are in. They are abundantly clear, as you know. Yes, you could wear a respirator with the filters, and that would be sufficient to allow you some degree of protection against the virus. But much of the infection, for instance, just a trivial example, occurs through the eyes. And yet we're not forcing people to walk around with face shields. These paper masks do nothing. We all know that. The data are clear on that. It's hard to understand any medical justification for this, and yet the harm to society, the harm to our children is clear and, and self-evident. We declare no opportunity should be denied, including education, career, military service, or medical treatment over unwillingness to take an injection. 
these remain, all of the products available in the United States remain experimental products. The pharmaceutical companies, even those that have had licensed vaccines, have refused to distribute and market those licensed vaccines because of the obligations that come with that. And uh, we, we are strongly of the opinion that individuals should not be mandated or forced or coerced to take these products at this point in time, particularly now that we have Omicron. We declare that First Amendment violations and medical censorship by government technology and media companies should cease and the Bill of Rights should be upheld. This is fundamental, you know, we believe in the Constitution stuff. This isn't radical. Uh, you know, if, if we're uh, right-wing uh, Nazis because we believe in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, then something is seriously wrong with how the press is positioning all this information. Um, we declare that Pfizer, Moderna, BioNTech, Janssen, AstraZeneca, and their enablers withheld and willfully admitted safety and effectiveness information from patients and physicians and should be indicted for this. Again, this is an incontrovertible fact. We have the GAO report from the government side. We have the forced disclosure of the Pfizer information package, which is still being released and revealed, that is showing that a lot of the propaganda and information that's been pushed on us about vaccine efficacy and safety is fraudulent. I don't know how else to say it. That is the legal word for when you know that we are, you are saying things that are not true. Um, we declare governmental and medical agencies must be held accountable for their actions. The withholding of information, the manipulation of information, the propaganda, the horrible compounded policy that we've seen, um, the attacks on for instance, the originators of the Great Barrington Declaration, just to take one of the most egregious examples that's well documented. This must be stopped and these people must be held accountable. Very simple points. In some, they may sound uh, quite inflammatory and radical, but you know we've been subjected to constant censorship, pressure, defamation, and attacks. Fortunately, not by the Epoch Times. We're very grateful as a community for the role of the Epoch Times as a truth teller in this. I know that you and your organization have been rigorous throughout this in requesting and demanding that information that is published in your journal and through your TV outlets is well documented. Um, and you've always pressured me to be very cautious in what I say when we interview so that we can ensure that it is well documented. Um, these 10 points, um, if you look at them individually, each one of them is well supported by existing data. Let's talk about this. This is something I haven't had a chance to discuss yet with anyone um, on the show. So you've looked a bit at some of these data dumps from Pfizer, right? you're saying that you're seeing things there that are highly problematic. Um, what have you seen in there that you feel is, you know, the, the most egregious? Well, the uh, table with the 11, I think it's nine or 11 pages of adverse events, single line listing, concatenated, separated by uh, semicolons. So these aren't separate points line by line. They are concatenated. So there are multiple adverse events on each line. 
in and of itself is shocking that this was known, that this is the work product of the pharmacovigilance globally of the Pfizer BioNTech pharmacovigilance team, which just, uh, I know pharmacovigilance is another one of these long technical terms. What, what the, if I can break it down, what it means is that after a product, medical product is licensed, the international standards say that the marketing company, the, comp the sponsor that's, that's manufacturing and marketing that product has an obligation to set up a separate department so it's, it's one of these kind of quality control things where a separate silo is set up for monitoring reports coming from patients and physicians saying that these things have occurred after we have received this product. And they have an obligation, global standards, to follow each one of those reports up which is akin to the CDC's obligation with VAERS, but the CDC doesn't take it as seriously mm. as the pharmaceutical industry has to take it. And so this is the work product from their pharmacovigilance shop at Pfizer BioNTech. And clearly they did not want to disclose this information because they fought hard, as did the FDA, to withhold this information. Most of this information in these disclosure documents were available to the FDA when they made their decision that these were safe and effective vaccine products and they should be fully licensed. So that the table that lists these adverse events in and of itself is stunning. These are adverse events of special interest. They've redacted the information about their frequency. Um, mm. uh, there is some overall tabularization of frequency by organ category, which is the like grossest, highest level summary. Um, they're not giving us the data about their event rate um, uh, for each specific uh, category or, or diagnostic code, which is essentially what all these are, is separate diagnostic codes. Um, then that's, that's one that's shocking. You, you may or may not recall, I think it goes all the way back to our first interview when I was talking about this Japanese common technical document dossier mm. that uh, Byron Bridal had obtained. And, and I spoke about that and, and we both got plenty of uh, pushback from the fact checkers. Back then, I think none of us really recognized that whole ecosystem of what the fact checkers were and what they have become. Uh, but back then, we all took it seriously, and it seemed so unfair. And they were attacking based on things that I had said and Byron Bridal had said when he'd evaluated. We both independently evaluated this Japanese common technical dossier. What we find now with the Pfizer releases is that all that was true and more. Um, so the suspicions that we had that we had inferred because we couldn't read the whole document. Neither of us are fluent in, in Japanese. Um, we could look at the tables and listings that were in English and draw conclusions based on that and the, and the um, footers that were describing those tables, but we didn't have the whole body of the document, let alone have the body of the a parallel document that had been submitted to the FDA. And just to reel back again in time, I specifically called Peter Marks Center, Center for Biologic Evaluation and Research, and had a conference call with him. This is before the vaccine licensure or anything else, and said, I was really concerned about these various things that I was seeing 
Um, and uh, my concern was that the agency may not have had a full appreciation of some of the subtleties and nuances that I had as somebody who'd been involved in creation of the original technology. And he assured me that um, we now, that we, I'm, he's speaking on behalf of the agency and the government, now have a much more complete uh, document set from Pfizer, and there's nothing in this is his statement. There was nothing in that that worried him. Now I get to see, we get to see what he was actually talking about. And in fact, everything that Byram and I had observed and more turns out to be true. These were not rigorously uh, characterized in terms of uh, pharmacokinetics. It's another big long word. How long does the drug stay in your body? Uh, pharmacodistribution, where does it go in your body? Genotoxicity, does it impact on your DNA? Um, reproductive toxicology, is it a risk for reproductive health in animal models and subsequently in humans? Now we see from these documents that, that Pfizer knew that it was grossly overstating the efficacy. Hmm. They knew that the all-cause mortality was higher in the treated groups than the untreated groups. They knew that that all-cause mortality was associated with cardiotoxicity. They knew that many of the things that have subsequently come out had to trickle out. We've had to, it's like pulling teeth out of the CDC to get this information, as you know, because they've been so aggressively withholding things. And we've had to go to Israel and Great Britain and Sweden and Germany and UK and Scotland to pull this information and collate it and try to make sense out of it. Pfizer knew all that. Um, so a lot of, I think there are many in the legal profession that are looking at this and um, raising questions about whether in fact this does meet the criteria of fraud in terms of withholding information and whether or not it would break the legal veil that is protecting the pharmaceutical industry from any liability because it appears that they knew of many of these risks and adverse events. Clearly they did. And yet never formally doc disclosed them to patients, which gets to my core, as you'll recall, my original, original pee, you know, under the mattress, the thing that really aggravated me at the start was the breach of fundamental medical ethics having to do with informed consent and the importance of disclosing to patients fully and completely what the potential risks are. And we now have clear documentation that those risks were known, they were extensive, and information about those risks were withheld. And we have that, inf we have that knowledge through the Pfizer document dossier and the documents that are being disclosed, um, as well as through um, the GAO report, the New York Times report on President's Day, etc., It's becoming more and more clear, and yet the government continues to deny it. The first point in this new declaration is that the you know, universal vaccination should end. You phrase it differently, but I understand that's what, that's what the point is. Um, so presumably, that's because of your understanding of the science among the doctors in your organization. Can you give me an overview of how you reached this conclusion? This is not something we've said trivially or lightly in any way, shape, or form. 
we recognize that this is going to subject us to all kinds of derision, pressure, censorship, attacks, etc. And you know from my, our prior interviews that I have always been very reluctant to come to a position where I say these vaccines are not indicated for any cohort. Over time, as we've learned more and more about the risks, the adverse events, the all-cause mortality now that's coming out, um, is being uh, revealed by insurance companies, all kinds of data sources. This curious situation where um, the data are demonstrating a dose-dependent relationship between risk of infection, disease, and death, which is paradoxical. This is being seen in country after country after country now and is being openly discussed in the press now. And just spell out exactly what that means. Uh... The shocking thing, um, I don't know how else to say it, is that while one had assumed in what we were being told and basically marketed by our governments was that these vaccines would protect us from infection, replication, virus spread, and at a minimum, as those pillars fell and the data became clear that the vaccines were not effective in any way that a traditional vaccine would be considered to be effective, preventing infection and spread, the fallback position of the government has always been, well, they protect you from severe disease and death. Now that those pillars are falling. The data from the US, from Europe, from the UK, and Scotland until they stop sharing the data, and Israel, demonstrates that the more vaccines of these genetic vaccines, particularly the RNA vaccines, that an individual patient receives. So I, I prefer not to use the booster language because um, technically even dose one is a booster of your prior infection from circulating cold coronaviruses. Technically that's, so let's just call them doses because that gets away with whether these are actually working as vaccines or are they really some sort of a prophylactic therapy, which case can be made, that's kind of what it's come down to. But the observation is the more doses of these products that you receive, the higher your risk for infection, disease, and death compared to those that remain, quote, unvaccinated. Now the key caveat with that is who's unvaccinated anymore because functionally most of us have already received an infection of some kind, especially with Omicron. 75% of children now in the United States have antibodies, but only a fraction of those have been vaccinated. So this, the control group that we're comparing to is really not unvaccinated. It's naturally immune for the most part. But compared to that unvaccinated control group, whatever it consists of, there is a growing clarity in data from many, many different sources that the number of vaccine doses administered correlates with an increased risk, depending on the number of doses, of infection, disease, and death. What I'm hearing from frontline docs all over the world is the people that we're seeing now in the hospital are all vaccinated. You'll recall 
that what we were given as the talking point is this is a disease of the unvaccinated. That's now completely flipped on its head. The data no longer support that talking point. In fact, the data support the contrary talking point. So it's no longer working as a vaccine. If anything, it's a short-term immuno enhancement. Uh, I don't know what to say. It's not even very effective of that on that. And we have the CEO of Pfizer acknowledging it. We have David Marks of Sieber acknowledging that multiple jabs aren't working. We have the chief immunologist for the Israeli government acknowledging that multiple booths aren't working. And yet we still have official policy in the United States and in Louisiana, as we were just talking about, of trying to continue to vaccinate people. And uh, what we're observing, and this is what has driven us to this decision, is not just the nuance of the underlying science about T-cell dysfunction and the role of pseudouridine, as you've covered, as Zachary and your group, I think, and others have covered, and I think even in American Thought Leaders, some of your other pieces where you interviewed Wright and Cole, uh, this was discussed. Um, the pseudouridine is immunosuppressive. Pseudouridine incorporating RNA is having half-lives of 60 days or longer which is totally unprecedented. This is not a natural RNA by any stretch of the imagination. It's not behaving as RNA. This fact, published in Cell, observed by a strong group from Stanford University, by lymph node biopsy, this is not in cell culture in a Petri dish, okay? This is in human beings after being ejected in their deltoid and sampling by fine needle aspiration in their axilla. These RNAs are sticking around, continuing to produce high levels of, of protein, of spike protein, for 60 days or longer. They didn't test beyond 60 days. And the levels of spike protein being produced are far in excess of the levels that are observed in your blood after you get a natural infection. That now makes sense out of some of the adverse event profile. One of the things that's been confusing, why would you see more adverse events with the vaccine than you would see with the infection? Well, now we have data showing the level of spike protein is much higher after the vaccination in your blood um, compared to what you get after you get an infection. Um, so it's the sum of the all-cause mortality, this uh, increasing granularity of knowledge and acknowledgement of the broad spectrum of adverse events, the clear lack of effectiveness. These vaccines are not stopping infection, replication, and transmission, something the Washington Post called me a liar for saying when I said it on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and yet here it is, it's widely acknowledged, just as I had observed back then. Um, they're not acting like vaccines. They're not providing durable protection. The data is increasingly demonstrating that these products are in a dose-dependent manner, that's key for scientists, okay? If you want to have a causative relationship between a drug and an adverse event, you want to see as you give more drug, you get more adverse event, right? Makes sense. We're observing that now. And we're observing the cardiotoxicity, the cardiologists that are looking at this in a more and more granular way, 
let alone the anecdotal of this, the high-performing athletes, the weightlifters, etc., cetera, uh, spontaneously expiring, I'll make that gentle, um, on the field in the middle of high-performance sports activities in, at rates that seem to be um, unprecedented. Uh, despite all that, we're now seeing more and more and more data that the cardiotoxicity, the myocarditis, is actually quite prevalent. If you just rely on clinical myocarditis, that means that something has caused so much damage that it caused you to go to the hospital, okay? We call it a grade four adverse event. That's, that's a big deal in medicine. Um, drug causes you to go to the hospital, that's a big deal. What we're seeing is that now that cardiologists and others have become sensitized to this risk, and the tests that can be performed, like troponin assays and certain types of MRI scans, functional tests, we're seeing evidence that it may actually be the majority of particularly young males that receive these vaccines are having cardiac damage. Furthermore, it's long been known that myocarditis on average, before the vaccine of any cause, viral or otherwise, had something like a 15 to 20% mortality rate at a five-year horizon. The, as the data is going by, because remember, it hasn't been that long, what the cardiologists are telling me is that they're observing um, morbidity and mortality, that's disease and death, um, that is tracking along those same lines as would be observed with classical myocarditis. So you'll recall that the, um, as, as the CDC disclosed that myocarditis was a problem, and I think we discussed this on our prior interviews, the story promoted in the press, uh, how else do you say it? Um, we could call it propaganda, in my opinion, but whatever it is, that, that messaging, that we proved messaging that was promoted in the legacy media, mainstream media, was that this is mild myocarditis and, it, and the children are recovering, they're not gonna have right. problems with it. That's not what the data is showing now. The data are showing that these young boys in particular, but it's also young girls, just at a lower incidence. There seems to be a testosterone factor, cofactor in this, but they're not recovering. As I've been saying all along, heart muscle doesn't heal, it scars. And, and I fear that not only do we have this cancer risk, but we have this uh, long-term heart damage risk. Now, I was also interviewed on Monday by Del Bigtree together with Ryan Cole and Richard Urso. And they very much focused in their prognosis long-term on the T-cell damage and the consequences of that and potential consequences. And I, and so Dell turned to me last and so I got to bat clean up and I mentioned the cardiac. The other one that's coming out now, more and more, it's still anecdotal. And it's clear that obstetricians and pediatricians have been strongly encouraged, let's say, to not report these things. But there's more and more data coming out. Not only do we see dysmenorrhea or menometrorrhagia, these alterations in menses, mm -hmm. like the observation of the elderly postmenopausal women that suddenly start having menses after taking the vaccine. That's a very odd finding. 
it suggests something with the ovary. We know these lipids go to the ovary because of the Pfizer documents. Okay. Um, now we're hearing these reports of spontaneous abortions, birth defects, and um, paradoxical infant death shortly after delivery that seem to be tracking at significantly higher rates than is normally observed. These are all things that can occur during pregnancy. They're known risks of pregnancy, but they have very well characterized rates. And um, this has been a worry. And again, you'll recall that on the basis of very scanty data, there was strong statements encouraging by the CDC that women should take these experimental products during pregnancy. And now the data is coming out in multiple threads that suggest there is, in fact, reproductive toxicology problems, which is something that I have also been warning about, as have many of my colleagues. So you ask why. You know, why, why such a controversial statement? We should stop these injections. I'll just read it again. We declare and the data confirm that the COVID-19 experimental genetic therapy injections must end. What I'm hearing is that there's a heck of a lot that's of yet unknown, and there's all these signals that need to be studied at length, clearly, right? And at the same time, there's this other piece, which is just that this is actually treatable, right? Precisely, and preventable with vitamin D. Mm -hmm. That's the other shocking thing, is that there are virtually no deaths from this disease in people who have vitamin D levels in their plasma, in their blood, above 50 nanograms per mil. Okay, I'm going to just, how can you know that? that? That is an astounding thing to say. I mean, I, I understand that vitamin D is very important. I've, I've, I've learned that. But that There's is... actually many studies out now, mm -hmm. including double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials. Um, and it turns out that this is a thread that goes back to 2006 with influenza. You may or may not recall the day that I went and spoke to the truckers up in Hagerstown. And paradoxically, that same afternoon after I'd given that speech, I had a call out of the blue from a physician. He has intelligence community ties. And this researcher was part of a team that had undertaken a study in which they data mined. They looked at the data records from the Department of Defense Health System for warfighters and looked at the morbidity and mortality. Because when they get influenza, they're not, on the, they're not ready for battle. So that kind of matters. And he, he was given the task of analyzing these data and try to figure out what the cofactors are mm. to differentiate between the ones that were um, taken out by influenza and incapacitated versus the ones that were just shrugging it off and staying functional. And what he discovered was clear, statistically rigorous proof that vitamin D levels explained those differences. The story he tells me is that he was assigned to go visit Dr. Fauci, thinking, you know, he's going to get a, you know, this is important information. We're going to invest all kinds of money and, and uh, promote vitamin D based on your exceptional work and findings of your team. Instead, what he got told, per his relating the story to me, was the phrase, we don't use drugs to treat influenza. We treat influenza with vaccines only. And with that, it died. The point is that this policy that we've seen roll out here with this particular RNA respiratory virus and its role in vitamin D 
goes way back to the mid-2000s when the same leadership at the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease made a clear and unequivocal decision to not pursue the importance of vitamin D uh, in, in preventing respiratory disease. The data are um, indisputable. Um, vitamin D at sufficient levels is necessary to support the health, particularly of your T-cell population. What a surprise, we keep coming back to that same thing. Okay, and uh, it costs pennies. The thing that uh, I find most astounding is the reports that I hear again and again from patients that they went to their doc and they said they wanted their vitamin D levels tested, which is a simple test, it's inexpensive, and their doctor refused to do it. Um, it is such a simple thing, it would cost pennies, it would quench this outbreak. And if we're really worried, about resurgence next fall. If we're really worried about Gert von den Bosch's uh, um, troubling predictions, we would do as Bill Gates has now endorsed. I mean, we have, you know, I, 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 I hate citing Bill Gates in anything having to do with public health. The man never even graduated from college, let alone a medical school or get a PhD, um, but he is considered to be such an important voice in public health by the legacy media and by governments all over the world. And he's the major funder, uh, as I understand it, of the World Health Organization. Um, when he comes out with the statement that we blew it, basically paraphrasing, by focusing only on vaccines, and for the next outbreak, the next pandemic, we have to be re ready with drugs, um, I find that fascinating because it has been my position since January 4th, uh, 2020, when I got that f infamous phone call. Uh, that's why I focused on repurposed drugs, because in my opinion, as a vaccinologist, vaccines are good for some things. They're not good for everything. I always use the phrase, give a three-year-old a hammer and everything becomes a nail. And for some reason, the NIAID and, and our entire public health infrastructure has elected to just focus on vaccines and promoting new vaccine technologies in particular, and hasn't allowed um, other alternative approaches, including approaches that just have to do with good health, um, that can have such a huge impact on um, your risk from this disease. You know um, uh, that diabetes and obesity in addition to extreme age, are our biggest risk factors. And those are lifestyle preventable diseases. And even in the face of diabetes and morbid obesity, which by the way, interferes with vitamin D availability, so those are interacting variables, we can have a huge impact on the risk by strengthening people's immune systems with uh, just giving them not just enough vitamin D to prevent them from getting rickets, which is like the obvious baseline thing, right? But enough vitamin D to keep their immune systems functioning. This is particularly important for African Americans and individuals of color operating in northern climes and working in an office space and things like this. You know, their skin coloration is designed for um, latitudes where they're exposed to a heck of a lot more sun. And that's no longer happening. It doesn't happen here in the Northern Hemisphere, and they are highly susceptible to very low levels of vitamin D.
There's other genetic risk factors that have been identified that are curiously aligned with this virus. But in particular, um, there's a good chance that if the government would just do some simple public health messaging saying, go get your blood levels drawn and get your vitamin D levels up above 50 nanograms per mil, it's going to make a huge difference. Um, that it would cost pennies. Uh, and it is important to get your blood levels tested. A lot of people are often will ping me and say, oh, can I just take more vitamin D? Well, the answer is maybe. Um, you can get toxic from too much vitamin D. And different people absorb vitamin D at different levels. And as I mentioned, your body mass index, your obesity and things like that will modulate your free vitamin D, which is what matters. And the test is cheap. So get the test and uh, get some guidance. It's a simple counseling to say, hey, you should take this much vitamin D. I had low vitamin D levels. When I got infected and had severe disease in February, my vitamin D levels were down in single digits. Um, I should have been taking more vitamin D. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, I'm not perfect and, and none of us are. We've learned all these things over time. But you ask, is, are the data there? They are. I am not aware, neither are the docs like McCullough and others that I highly respect and Cole. McC Peter McCullough, as you know, is just uh, rigorous about the, the literature. Um, his mind and that of Ryan Cole is like a steel trap. Um, I'm not aware of any cases of uh, COVID associated death other than somebody with a gunshot wound or something ridiculous like that or a car crash um, where the death is clearly attributable to COVID that had vitamin D levels uh, uh, above or equal to 50 nanograms per mil. In other words, 50 nanograms per mil seems to be the th threshold where there's a big change in mortality. And there may be a case it may be there's a case of somebody with cystic fibrosis who had adequate vitamin D levels and still expired after they got infected. I have no, no knowledge of that. I'm not aware of that case being reported in the literature, that hypothetical case. But the preponderance of evidence is very clear. 50 nanograms per mil is um, not an optimal level. It's the point of inflection in the curve, mm. okay? so. Higher levels can even be more beneficial, but this is something that really deserves a discussion between the patient and the physician supported by a blood test. Uh, there can be problems with high zone vitamin D toxicity, but that's at much higher levels, and 50 seems to be the cutoff where the curve goes from one to another and when you get above that, it appears that virtually there, are no, there is no mortality from COVID-19 in individuals that are at 50 nanograms or above. I mean, that's, that's an incredible, incredible uh, reality to, to be faced with and some, a very obvious public health direction to be explored, right? Um, Dr. Malone, any final thoughts as we finish up? Yeah, Jan, one, so as you know, I like to always end on a positive note. One of the things that I'm hearing a lot about from patients and general public is the, the thread that um, the entire medical profession is corrupt. 
that what they've observed, those that have been tracking these various events and these various, let's say, gently misstatements that have come out from the government, um, they've, they've interpreted that as evidence that the entire medical and healthcare system is corrupt in some way. And I just want to close, if you don't mind, with um, that is not what I'm observing. Hmm. We have these 17,000 physicians and medical scientists that are speaking up. And all the time as I travel, I have people, physicians, nurses, physicians' assistants coming up to me and saying, thank you, I felt so alone. And when you spoke out, you and your colleagues, I realized I wasn't alone. There's so many strong disincentives, financially and otherwise. Careers compromised. You know, you can't pay your mortgage, you can't get your kids in school um, if you speak out. And there's been so much intimidation and defamation and uh, pressure on healthcare providers to not speak out about their observation. And I ask the public, please don't interpret that as everybody is corrupt. It's easy to get dark and black in these times after what we've seen. I think we do have some major systemic problems and it's going to be hard to fix them. But I know and I've seen and I hope your audience sees that I in my own actions and behaviors demonstrate that um, there are still many physicians and medical care providers that are committed to the Hippocratic Oath and to the fundamentals of the importance of patient consent uh, and medical ethics in general. And don't lose hope. Uh, we'll get there, but we got some things to fix. And um, I think that together we can, if, if we all pull together, we can, we can fix what we have to fix. Well, Dr. Robert Malone, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. <laughs> Likewise. Thanks. Thanks, Jan. Thank you all for joining Dr. Robert Malone and me for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kalik. Mm -hmm.